Hi, I'm Kevin Williamson. Welcome to How the World Works, where we talk about work and why we work and what it means and the economic and non-economic reasons for it. And one of the complaints I've got from some of our uh, viewers and listeners is that I need to get further outside of my inner circle of people I know to um, to find interviews. And so I've, I've reached all the way across, literally to the office next door, uh, <laughs> to bring in my friend Jonah Goldberg. Uh, Jonah and I have worked together at at least two different institutions and uh, have known each other for, I guess, 15, 16, 17 years now, something like, like that. that. Yeah, it's been 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 a while. So this is not a stretch, but you've got an interesting uh, work history. And since that's what we kind of talk about here, I wanted to bring you in to, uh, to chat about it. So the first thing I really wanted to talk to you about, which a lot of people maybe don't know this about your resume as much, because most people think you you know, popped out as a, a fully formed pundit uh, at some point in the late 1990s and just never did anything else in life, but you had an, an earlier career. Tell me about gargoyles. For a pundit, I am still probably America's foremost gargoyle pundit expert. Uh, in so far as I did, uh, so I was a television producer in the mid '90s. It was not my first job in Washington, but it was sort of first job adjacent. I was working for a television production company, and um, our big client had been my boss at the American Enterprise Institute, and I very quickly did not want to be doing just stuff for him anymore. I want to be doing this is Ben Wattenberg. This is Ben Wattenberg. And, um, so at one point, um, we managed to land this very strange project where you may recall there used to be, um, remember the in-flight catalogs? Uh, there was this company called Toscano and gargoyles were really big right back then for various reasons. There was a cartoon, there was a coming animated remake of Cathedral of Notre Dame or Hunchback of Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. And we sold them on a documentary about the history of gargoyles. And we took their advanced order uh, as the budget to make a documentary about <laughs> gargoyles. And then uh, I was given the, f this was my chance. You say, oh, you don't want to do this other stuff? You want to do something interesting and weird? I said, yes, this is perfect for me. So I did a, I wrote and produced and shot a documentary about gargoyles uh, that had location shots um, in several different international cities. Um, did a lot of actual, because I was a bit of a D&D &D dork back in my youth. No. Um, so I, I know this is shocking. This, not, not a big enough dork to wear a Dungeons & Dragons t-shirt on this program, by the way. Uh, well, you kind of warned me off because you yeah. said it had been done before. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, and so I got really into it. and. Um, did a lot of interviews and I sort of flooded the zone. I, I, I want to be really clear up front, uh, not a great documentary, but uh, we did it. We shot it. It did really well, um, moved a lot of product. It did so well that PBS got in touch and we were primarily a PBS uh, television production company, got in touch and said, we'd like you to sell it to a, punch it up and let us use it as a pledge drive special. Um, as pledge drive swag, like, you know, pledge $50 and get this tote bag and a free copy of the VHS of Gargoyles, Guardians of the Gate. And um, so then I, went, I got to go to Paris and shoot more there. We also, I also laid the foundation to do a documentary about um, the Cathedral of Notre Dame, which I did, which also was not great. And, um, but like I can every now and then 
I, I just wait. I wait like one of those snakes on the seafloor for the fish to get really close. I wait for a conversation to turn to gargoyles. And then <laughs> I just unload because uh, technically gargoyle is an architectural term. Um, anything that drains the water off the side of a building is a gargoyle. Um, but it's taken on this double meaning because it also comes from the gargouille, which was this dragon that supposedly roamed the River Seine. And um, the modern words gargle and gurgle all have the same root because of that sound of the water coming up. So I can do this for like 20 minutes if you like. <laughs> well, um, we've got all sorts of times. So. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So it was a great experience. Um, I had to do all my day job stuff and I was doing this on the side. So I would often sleep on the edit suite floor in the middle of the day when I had a few minutes. And um, um, and it did well as a pledge drive thing. Um, people often ask me when I say, when I tell them the title of the documentary, Gargoyles, Guardian, it's Gargoyles, Guardians of the Gate. And they're like, what gate? And I was like, damned if I know. <laughs> but it sounded good. It was alliterative. Yeah. And um, um, so anyway, I think you can actually find it on YouTube now, which again, I want to be really clear. It was great given my total inexperience and really limited budget. Mm -hmm. It was not good on the merits. And um, I would would have loved to have been able to redo it, but um, it had the distinct quality of doneness, which is also something I appreciate. Yes, doneness and paid forness. That's right. Those are those are those are great things. And so you did a second documentary about Notre Dame. I did another one about Notre Dame. I also did. The nice um, thing about those is like you know you don't go to Cleveland to shoot. That's right. That's right. And um, and then it became like the success of the Gargoyles thing led to this whole sort of mini industry thing for us. Uh, the company I worked for also did a documentary my buddy the guy who was the best man at my wedding he got to do um one on labyrinths and went around and looked at all the great labyrinths um if you've ever if you ever get a chance if you go to the washington national cathedral and can get a tour to see all of the hidden gargoyles that are up there some really wild ones like a there. darth vader gargoyle there's a darth vader one mm -hmm. there's a politician with bribe money coming out of his pockets Very um nice. there's another one with a guy with a canister of ddt and a gas mask but you can't see them Unless you get the tour, because they're hidden up in the top. And there's actually a really interesting medieval tradition about uh, marginal art that it, you can't see from below, but is supposed to be warding off evil spirits and all sorts of things. So so how does one stumble into doing documentaries about gargoyles? Uh, like, so What happened before that? Yeah. So uh, by the way, you, you mentioned being a TV producer, and I've worked with TV producers for years. I don't know what they do. Yeah. Um, fair. Fair. So- I think one of the, f just to answer that really quickly, the best television producers, at least in my experience, it's one of those jobs that is about, 90% of it is just worrying. What could go wrong? Will the guests not show? Will we not have this at that time? Is everybody, you know, is, are all the ducks in a row? That's what good producers do. And I think that that instinct is good for a lot of different, like event planning, I'm sure is like that. Mm. Um, they're just certain kinds of, and I, I'm not speaking for all television producers, obviously ones who do dramatic series have a different thing and all the rest, but the kind of stuff we were doing, uh, well, I'll, I'll get to that. So anyway, I started my first job in Washington, all right, back up after college, I briefly went to Prague, um, where, um, I taught English sporadically, um, but I really went to be a starving writer and I kind of batted 500. I didn't starve and I didn't write. Um, but I had a great time. Really glad I did it. I came back 
um, I wasn't there that long. I came back for some family reasons. And at the time I had a girlfriend who was going to AU law school. So um, I swung through Washington to hang out with her. And while here and not knowing what I was going to do with my life, um, I did the informational interviews around Washington, whatever. And I got a interview with Ben Wattenberg for who was a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, um, who was looking to replace this guy who's been a longtime friend of mine now, Tevi Troy, who was going to go off to grad school. The interview question that got me the job, at least according to my memory of it, was he asked me what book I'd been reading. And I said, I lied and said, what was the last book I read? And I lied and I said, Francis Fukuyama's uh, uh, The End of History and The Last Man. And I was really like only on page 17 of it or something like that. But I had read the National Affairs article that it was based on. And he's like, I never understood that. What's that about? And um, my answer was sufficiently passable that that was the thing that put me over the top. And um, um, so a lot of people probably don't really remember who Ben Wattenberg was and yeah. what his career was when he was like, you want to maybe. Uh, oh, sure. So Ben Wattenberg, Ben was. Very prominent guy in his time. In his time. And uh, he was known as. Um, Ronald Reagan's favorite Democrat, or at least Ben liked to pronounce that. That's what Reagan said about him. And he was a had been a speechwriter for LBJ. He was what some people would call a Scoop Jackson Democrat, meaning he was a, a, a hawk on national defense. He was anti-communist. He um, was one of the founders of this thing called the Coalition for a Democratic Majority, which was sort of the, the democratic manifestation of foreign policy neoconservatism that in some ways led to like the DLC, which led to Clinton and Gore and all that. He was also a self-taught demographer, wrote a famous book called The Birth Dearth, but he was one of the first people to spot the problem of falling um, fertility rates. He was a famous opponent of Paul Ehrlich and the whole population bomb stuff. He was a syndicated columnist. He and a guy named Richard Scammon wrote a book called The Real Majority in the 19, early 1970s that was picked up it was intended to sort of save the Democratic Party, but instead a young staffer named Pat Buchanan picked it up um, and uh, incorporated it into his thinking for for Richard Nixon. He was never a Republican, um, but so I was his I was his research assistant on his books for a while, um, and then I was um, and on a syndicated column, and then he started a PBS television show called Think Tank, and that's how. I started working on it as his assistant, and then I was like, I've checked this box working for Ben. I want to go try my hand at being a television producer. So I went to the company that 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 produced these things for Ben. He was a client of the company and, um, and sort of jumped ship. And uh, Ben wanted me to stay with him. I didn't. And um, being a producer of Think Tank was great. The whole, uh, whole pretense of Think Tank was – most journalists don't know what they're talking about. I think this is something that you would subscribe to and as a general proposition. Yeah. And um and the and most of the political shows are kind of dumb because they're like 3 minutes on one topic and then you move on. And so he the whole pretense of it was only experts and only one topic for the whole show. And what was great about that is it really helped me you know as a, one way to put it is expand my my dilettante factor because every week I'd have to do this huge dive on a new topic, yeah. figure out who the experts are, interview them, compile, you know, prep for it, and then the next week it's you know it's homelessness, and the week after that it's it's the EU or whatever, and um, and that was a really great experience, and also just the experience of 
working with the friends that I had at the time who were still probably my closest friends. You know, I mentioned not knowing what television producers do. This reminded me, I mean, 10, 12 years ago, I was working at National Review in the New York office. And uh, when you work in the New York offices, you get a lot of calls to do television because that's where the television shows are produced, or a lot of them anyway. And I remember getting a call from a producer at a big cable news network that is not Fox News. Mm -hmm. And uh, saying, hey, we really need someone. We had someone drop off a panel today. We're really looking for a Russia expert. Can you come over and be our Russia expert, be on this Russia panel today? Um, we know it's short notice, but we'll send a car over, pick you up. We'd, we'd help us out. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm actually free all afternoon, but I don't know the first thing about Russia. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I kind of know where Moscow is and, you know, why, why are you calling me? And they just figured that apparently you can just call journalists randomly in New York and say, I need an expert on this. And they will, well, I'm an expert on that. I'll happily show up and do it. That and, happens uh, all the time is that people, and, I, and it's part of the problem is especially there's some very smart senior producers at all the networks. I'm not mm -hmm. trying to disparage anybody. But a lot of the day-to-day -day bookers are basically 22 to 26-year-olds who are just said, go find somebody. Yeah. And so they call people and the people who answer say, of course, I'll, I can talk about that. And, um, and in fairness, the truth is they often can because the questions are usually so silly and the amount of time you have to talk about it that if you're – quick study, you can get up to speed, but it just, it's part of the problem is just the superficiality of the discourse. That because the conversation always is, no matter what the subject is, if it's foreign, is how does this affect domestic politics in the That's United right. States? That's right. right. And if, if there's a Democratic president in the White House, then the conservatives are supposed to criticize them. And if it's a Republican, uh, the liberals are supposed to criticize them. And it's all, the anatomy of all of that is just simply get people on different sides and squeeze their positions through a partisan lens and an explicitly American lens. Yeah. Which I suppose is worse in many ways now than it was when you first started, because as you mentioned, Wattenberg was a Democrat who had views and tendencies that probably wouldn't have been, um, that wouldn't fit in very well in the contemporary Democratic Party and maybe had a general approach to politics and policy that would now be thought of as more center-right. For sure. Yeah. I mean, he was a free market guy. He was a big defender of a lot of the LB, the big ticket LBJ things, you know, social security. There's a case to be made for defending social security. You know, it's not. Yeah. That's FDR, not LBJ. Right. I'm sorry. But Medicare, yeah. Medicaid, all of that. Um, and, uh, um, you know, those big entitlement programs, you defend, maybe you wouldn't defend the financing of them. Right. But that's a, um, uh, but he was a he was a right wing Democrat back when a time and I gotta admit, by the time in the early nineteen nineties, he was considered pretty weird um in the Democratic Party. Yeah. Um that process had been well underway of the ideological sorting and of the, of both parties. But um you know, Lyndon Johnson had an amazing tendency for leaving his stamp on people for the rest of their lives yeah. and inspired a lot of loyalty in people. I was in school at the University of Texas in the 90s, and basically anyone from the Johnson administration who couldn't figure out something else to do in life ended up at UT. It's just kind of – it was a full employment program yeah, for ex-Johnson yeah. hacks. And uh, you know, it was 30 years after the fact, and they were still just fierce, fierce uh, Johnson loyalists. It was, yeah. uh, was really surprising. <laughs> there are a bunch of politicians like that. Uh Friend of mine, you might know him, uh, Vin Canato. He wrote a book about mm. John Lindsay, who was the Golden Boy mayor of Republic, liberal Republican mayor of New yeah. York City, and he came out. He was with a magazine a, editor who ran against him. That's right. Yeah. A, and uh, uh, um, and my friend Vin, it was a great book called "The Unheavenly Unheavenly City," Ungovernable City. Um, 
about the Lindsay administration. And these guys came out of the woodwork. Every book event he did in New York to, to say, it's outrageous. How dare you slander John <laughs> Lindsay? It's like, as if anybody's still holding paper on John Lindsay. That's so. funny. So you grew up in New York City. I did. And um, did you have jobs when you were in high school? Did you have like, uh, did you work at Burger King? Did you have like humble summer jobs and that sort of thing? Or were you just sort of doing school stuff? Or I had I had quite a few humble summer jobs. I was a foot messenger for a couple summers. This is... Um, one step down from Bike Messenger. Wow. One step by, down from Bike Messenger, to be sure, uh, for a small publishing house, um, which was kind of fun. Well, so what did, what did a foot messenger do? It in the 80s, I assume? This was, uh, yeah. So this was the mid to late 80s. So when you had to be pretty rich to have a cell phone. Oh, there was no cell phones. I mean, I didn't know. Oh, Wall Street guys had cell phones. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those the thing that Gordon Gecko had on right, the beach. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but no, there was no cell phone. And um, So what did you do? Uh, so I kind of, I helped run the mail room at this place. Um, and, and people, you know, and, and carried packages to various other publishing houses and stuff and got lunch for people. And then the next year I kind of was a halftime receptionist and that kind of thing. Um, I learned a lot about New York and how to get free food from going to various places. I knew <laughs> like when this place was going to be giving out whatever and that kind of thing. Um, and I basically did it for beer money and that that sort of thing. I'm allowed to admit to underage drinking. And then um, uh, I was a mobile food vendor. Um, uh, my, I originally worked for a company called Love Bites, where they made essentially yuppie bonbons. There was little chocolate-covered ice cream nugget things. And the slogan, the logo of the company was a Cupid. And they made me wear this tight red t-shirt and short brown shorts and have a straw hat and a cane selling love bites. And that doesn't sound like any fun. No. And then <laughs> they, uh, although I wish I had a picture of it. There, there has been a long hunt for pictures of this. <laughs> and, um, and then, um, when they wanted me to switch my shift to, Saturday nights in the village where I'm supposed to like ask people, Hey, mister, you want a love bite wearing this getup? Uh, not to traffic in any sort of socio-political commentary. I was just like, this is not what I signed up for. And so I switched to, uh, Larry's Italian ices, which I sold on the street. And I'm a, as I think you are as well, I'm a big people watcher. Mm. Like I, I, I can just, I, I can walk through cities and I can stand on street or I can sit on a street corner or whatever and just look at the world going by and get endlessly entertained. And so all of those jobs were great for that kind of thing of just sort of being part of the city. Um, but uh, I wouldn't say, you know, I was struggling to pay the rent or anything like that. But you know, my parents believe that if, you know, you weren't doing something productive, you got to be productive. And so it was always just sort of expected that I have one kind of summer job or another. Um, later, I get some pretty cool internships and that kind of thing. But um, yeah, it always worked. What was college like? So uh, I think you know the story. Um, I am the Rosa Parks of gender integration. Yes. Um, I went, I was rejected from every college I applied to. Um, I had a good time in high school and I made some poor decisions. And Did you have bad grades? I got bad grades. I was very much an underachiever. High test scores, bad grades? High test scores, bad grades. I never, we had a trimester. Another type. Uh, I had a, we had a trimester system, and I never once made honor roll, which would have meant breaking an 85 average um, any one three-month period. And um, I can talk about it with a great glee and fun now, but it was, I've, as I explained to my daughter, 
it was less fun and funny at the time. Mm. Um, just because, uh, you know, I was a bit of a screw up and it, and, um, and so, uh, Goucher College in Maryland, which was never officially the sister school of Johns Hopkins, but it was kind of de facto, kind of culturally. Um, it was also the happy hunting ground for the Naval Academy. That's where Ross Perot met his wife. Um, uh, Goucher College in Baltimore County, it's in Towson, Maryland, um, had just decided to go co-ed and admit men. And they were looking for men with a high school transcript that if you looked at the right way, you could see potential. And I think if you looked at mine, I mean, I had great recommendations and and all that kind of stuff. And I did interesting things, but, um, and I had good SAT scores, not great, but good. And so I got in, uh, my freshman year Goucher, just shy of 10% of the male student body, um, came from my high school, three guys, um, because there were only 30 odd guys at the school, um, at the time. And I, and I, I do mean odd guys. And, um, about 7% of the male student body was Korean American and named Derek two guys. Um, and, uh, and Goucher was, I have to say, you know, in retrospect, it was a pretty great experience. Classroom education was always pretty good. Um, there's some really good professors there and, um, but it was also a chance to sort of reinvent myself to be a pioneer. I was one of the first mail editors of the school newspaper. I was involved in government and in, in student government stuff, picked a lot of fights, very controversial my freshman year. Um, uh, because the school had been protesting going co-ed for years before we got there. So the men were kind of lightning rods and I kind of leaned into it. I had fun with it. Mm. And, um, and so it was, a you know, it was a, it was a great, big, fun, controversial, you know, make a stink in college kind of experience. And I, I enjoyed it a lot. When's the last time you've gone back and read something you wrote for your college newspaper? It's been a while. It's been a while. How uh, how embarrassed by it do you think you would be? Um, it depends on the um, the thing. Um, uh, my mom had framed for my freshman year. So I, I just should explain to people. It was like, so this was this hotbed of 90s feminism stuff and all that. And I read more Foucault than I read of the Federalist Papers and all that. But um, like for people who know who my mom is, my mom was this very aggressive uh independent, strong-willed woman, um, very successful. And so the idea that somehow I looked down at women or was sexist towards women or didn't think women could compete or just, it never really just went right over me. And so it was more difficult for them to intimidate me by my, you know, so I just had fun with it. Yeah. And, um, so anyway, I ran for student freshman class president just because I thought it'd be funny. And, um, uh, and one of my many posters says, uh, you let me into your school and not let me be your president, which was probably a bad idea. And another one was make mommy Goldberg a happy camper, put a nice Jewish boy in office. Um, and, uh, when I lost the election, um, uh, my mom had the headline from the school newspaper frame and it was freshman disappoint Mrs. Goldberg elect bolt president. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. So. That's fun. So you worked mainly as a journalist. Yeah. And um, I've, I guess, twice given talks at journalism schools 
where I've made the argument that we should close them down mm-hmm. because that's not how you learn how to be a journalist. I agree. How'd you learn how to be a journalist? Um, well, I mean, part of it is a bit of a silver spoon thing um, insofar as my parents weren't super wealthy, but they were both at one point or another journalists. Mm-hmm. My dad was ran news syndicates for most of his professional life. And the way he began 30, 40% of any conversation was, you know what make a great article? Because he assigned features writers all over the country, all over the world to write things. And so I kind of steeped in it. I did not want to be a journalist. I had very highfalutin ideas about how journalists were just observers and not participants. And I had grandiose ideas when I was- You're a little Leninist. Well, I just, I wanted to, <laughs> no, but I, like- A little right-wing Leninist. As, a, as an underachiever, I felt like I had a lot to- compensate for it, a lot to uh. prove. I had a big chip on my shoulder. I knew all these people that I thought weren't all that impressive who got into these Ivy League schools and all that kind of thing. And I was in a rush to make up for lost time kind of thing. And so I did not seek out to be a journalist. It's just the Wattenberg job, the think tank job at AI led to one thing, led to another thing. Um, and I still, to this day, I mean, I've made peace with it because as, as a factual matter, I am a journalist and I, it'd be silly for me, but I've always thought of myself more as a writer. Mm-hmm. And I always want, my real plan was to write comic books and sci-fi novels, not to be a political guy. I just, it turned out starting in college that because I had saturated in this stuff in my childhood, that I was pretty conversant in political stuff and I enjoyed arguing. And then that inexorably led me to certain kinds of jobs. I don't know that I would be qualified to do much else. I don't think I was a, I know I wasn't a particularly good television producer in part because the kind of, it's such a collaborative team effort that the final product really isn't yours. And what I liked about writing is that the thing that was on the page was mine. Um, I didn't like writing for someone else's voice. I didn't like writing in, um, to the video, you know, like we, I used to say, you have to front load the nouns because you have to make the words match the pictures. My wife is a very accomplished ghostwriter and speechwriter, and she's perfectly comfortable writing for other people in their voices, you know, in the background. That was never me. I just, I wanted to be a writer who was mixed up in the fight, in the argument. And so I've always been an opinion journalist. I've never been a straight reporter, even I've done some reporting, but it's always been, let's send Jonas someplace funny and have him say funny or interesting things about it. It's never been, um, a who, what, when, and where thing. And I've never had that ability, which you have, um, which a lot of the best reporters have of being able to talk to somebody you profoundly disagree with and just let them talk. Mm. Um, I always want to get into an argument with them and that's not good for a political report for a real straight reporter. Yeah. So you had an interesting um, early career in journalism in that you were sort of um, present at the birth in some ways of uh, digital political journalism, where you were at the beginning of National Review Online. And um, if you'd been 10 years older, you would have invested a lot of your career in a model of journalism that was about to be more or less eradicated or at least radically changed. If you'd been 10 years younger, you'd have been coming into a situation in which these new things were really well established. And I was sort of old hat by that point, but you were there at a point where things could have gone either way and where it wasn't really, um, it hadn't yet been determined what the shape of journalism in the internet age was going to look like. So what was that like? Yeah. So, I mean, you're right. I mean, in some ways it's a parallel, it's a parable of 
why Gen X is so much better than all these other generations. It goes without saying. Yeah. I mean, because we grew up in the old analog world um, with very few television channels, very few, you know, sort of a common culture for better or for worse. Um, and part of the Gen X common culture was really half of the culture from the time before us because reruns, right? I mean, I grew up watching I Love Lucy and and all of those kinds of shows in a way that really were from like a different timeline in a, in, yeah. a, in a weird way. And similarly, the, the, we were old enough to remember typing on typewriters, but young enough to adjust to typing on computers without it being a sort of future shock kind of thing. And so in college, I was part of the effort to switch from using exacto knives and paste up on, for the newspaper to doing it on desktop publishing. And similarly, um, at National Review Online, we kind of um, made it up as we went along a little bit because no one knew where things were going. I remember, I remember vividly freaking out when I heard that the Wall Street Journal was launching something called Opinion Journal, which was going to be their online presence. And I felt like, the little mom and pop hardware store that has two kinds of nails, rusty and not rusty. And all of a sudden, you know, Home Depot moves in across the street. And I remember calling my dad about it, and again, who grew up in media stuff. And he said, no, this is good news. You never want to be in a business where really smart people, really smart, well-capitalized people have looked at what you're doing and said, man, that's stupid, right? You want to be in a business where um, really smart people are like, man, they beat us to the punch on this thing. And, and he was right. The rising tide did lift all boats. And, um, the more player, the more players that got into it, the better it was in the big picture for us. That doesn't mean we didn't make mistakes on a sort of day to day tactical kind of thing. So I remember when I first started working in, uh, newspapers that I'd kind of made transition from college newspaper to working for a newspaper group in India and then back in the United States. And I was kind of well into my career before it stopped feeling like I was working at my college newspaper. And I started thinking about this stuff as a business. Uh-huh. Um, so I guess when I was in my late 20s, I got hired as the editor-in-chief of a small suburban newspaper group in in Philadelphia. And I very first started thinking about this as um, as, as more of a business rather than this is fun thing you did that you happen to get a paycheck for. Right. And that was kind of kind of neat. Um, it seems like, from what I remember, the early days of, of National Review Online, especially, it very much had kind of a college newspaper uh, feel to it in some ways, and that sense of uh, youth and mission and liveliness. At what point did it settle into you to think that not only is this going to be a business, it's going to be um, one of the biggest businesses in the world, um, you know, which online media now is? Yeah. Uh, that took a while. I mean, you're right. It was, I mean, it was a real seat of the pants thing. I mean, um, you know, I started doing what the word blog didn't exist yet, but yeah. like my first stuff was an online journal, um, mostly focused around the impeachment, the Bill Clinton impeachment stuff, the Lewinsky scandal stuff. And, um, but I very quickly didn't want to be just sort of typecast as just writing about that kind of thing. So I started going in other ways and, um, but we were starved for copy back mm -hmm. then. Uh, the, the long-term writers for National Review saw the web as this, which is true in a lot of places, right? Um, uh, as this fad, flash in the pan kind of thing. You know, there I'm sure there are a gazillion quotes, you know, from people talking about how 
you know, like nobody more than three people are going to have a computer, you know, all those crazy quotes that get the future wrong. There were a lot of people who didn't Paul think- Paul Krugman famously. That's right. So we were, National Review in some ways was very lucky. At the very beginning of the internet, um, no one knew who to trust, right? They're still kind of true, but- uh, That has not got better. Yeah. yeah, it's not gotten better. But there were a lot of, there were a lot of upstart things. And one of the most important things and one of the most hard, most difficult things to establish on the in the world of the internet is a trusted brand. And if you're a conservative, William F. Buckley National Review, that's a trusted brand. And so, like, I, I, I always have a huge. Pro- this is this is a bit of a tangent, but like, for 25 years, I used to watch. I, I got you would see. People would have this success on the internet in one way or another, and they would get all the credit for it. They would make take they would take all sorts of contracts. They go into private consulting because they were these brilliant people, and it would drive me crazy because it was because it wasn't the internet. It wasn't their gift at the internet. It was like John McCain broke records raising money on the internet, um, and I remember he had some sort of web guru. Who everyone was crediting with it. No, it's just like. John McCain was a popular candidate. He was popular with a certain segment that was already savvy with the internet. And the previous record had been 16 bucks. Yeah, exactly. And so like, you know, it's, it turns out it's like, if you have a popular product, um, people will buy it on the internet. And this was true of all sorts of things. And so I don't give myself that much credit for a lot of the things at National Review Online's early success. Um, but one of the things I think was important was the people who were reading the web during the day back then were um, young professional types, Gen X professional types, right? 20 somethings, 30 somethings. And, you know, when I started at National Review, I was so incredibly nervous. I thought it was, you know, just, you know, it's like, it was like, I remember my first time I went to dinner with William F. Buckley. I was terrified it was going to be Latin puns and Chesterton quotes all <laughs> night long, right? And so one of the things that I did, most because I just leaned into myself, was uh, try to make it fun, right? It's sort of a not your father's National Review kind of thing. The print magazine still existed, and so it could be that. And um, and so I would do polls on what was the sweatiest movie of all time, and I would write columns about what was the most Burkean line from Animal House, which we both know is – the Delta House is a long tradition of existence in the community. Yes. Um, and um, uh, and so it was funny when we first uh, started selling NRO swag, uh, Jack Fowler, then the assistant publisher, came up with this idea. I'd been making this he, – he would refer to my fans who I would crowdsource things to as my flying monkeys. Mm-hmm. And it became a thing and we started calling them. I never really loved it, but whatever – and we came up with a flying monkey t-shirt about the g-file and me and whatever and the vendor, vendor who we got him from said we have never seen sales like this and you're like oh, really of extra extra larges from the from the south <laughs> and it was dudes in cubicles right and you know, that kind of thing and like more broadly though it was back then we were feeling you know we were we found a market gap of the morning newspapers had come out and there was – that was back in the days when there were still some evening editions of newspapers. Yeah. And we could write about stuff that appeared in the morning paper and add, either add value or add commentary or whatever to it that would then be 
useful for talk radio. And so we had found this niche in there. And when I look back on it now, what I see is, is that what we had done was we had simply were one of the early adopters of taking advantage of holes in the news cycle. And now there are no holes in the news cycle. Yeah. It is a Mobius strip of continuous stuff. And, um, and it's sort of, it's easy to lose sight of that now that, that there is no such thing. I mean, there's still morning news and that kind of stuff, but for the most part, the, the news cycle used to be a 24 hour, it used to be, you know, in 12 hour increments in effect, you know, the morning newspaper and then the evening nightly news and then the next day, the morning newspaper. And now it's just this hamster in a treadmill going full yeah. speed all the time. Yeah, I was the editor of an evening newspaper once upon a time, and uh, getting to work at four o'clock in the morning is just not any fun. That's, that's, that's the worst part about being the editor uh, uh, of an evening newspaper. Well, that and going broke because that was um, another feature of that particular business model. It's common to a lot of newspapers. Though. Yeah. You mentioned um, trying to make things fun, and you've got a, a, a pretty good talent for, for humor, but it's also been, I think, a little bit of um, not an unmixed blessing for you. I know that there are times when you've been worried about being uh, sort of pigeonholed as a comedian, as a mm -hmm. funny writer, and that you will, you know, you'll go somewhere for a panel and here's General Goldberg, say something funny. Yeah. And um, so that's kind of an interesting problem to have, you know, because most people, most people are not nearly as funny as they think they are. And, um, you know, most people, particularly if they're writing or doing something in, in, in public for a living, would benefit from having that um, talent. But it's also can be, a, can be limiting in a way. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, so like, uh, if we're going to get into sort of the life advice portion of all of this stuff. Um, so I'm, a, and, the, and again, this is just me, right? Uh, there are other people who have different business models, you know, at least until I launched the dispatch, you know, the, with Steve Hayes, um, I've always sort of considered myself in some ways in the Jonah Goldberg business. Right. And, National Review was a hugely important part of that business for a long time. AI was another hugely important part of it. But at the end of the day, um, I always wanted to be my own person, my own, you know, responsible for my own stuff. And, and so one of the lessons I always, I don't know where I learned it. I just, one of the, I always took to heart was you have to be willing to disappoint your biggest fans because if you watch, um, if you look around, I mean, you mentioned Ann Coulter earlier, the people who uh, it's now become really obvious, but it was it was it was a more subtle and unique insight back in the day. The people who get caught up listening to their biggest fans end up becoming caricatures because you you lean into the most pronounced stuff about yourself. They want you to, you know. Like no one goes to a Tom Petty concert and say, play the new album. They want to hear the greatest hits kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And so I got, I started getting known as a humorist and I omit part of the reason why I rebelled against it was that that is a really hard thing to be all the time. Like yeah. if the expert, like I remember when PJ O'Rourke, who was a brilliant writer, right? I mean, a truly brilliant writer, vastly funnier than I could ever be and and smarter than an enormous number of people. You know, like people don't really realize how smart he was to make the writing that he did seem so approachable, right? But he was a really brilliant guy. Um, but I remember he had a time there where he started just doing serious writing. 
And it always reminded me of the uh, the time where Bill Murray did Long Day's Journey into Night or something like that. Razor's Edge. Razor's Edge, that's right. Yeah. And you're watching, you just see Bill Murray's face and you're just like, you feel like Homer Simpson yelling at, you know, Prairie Home Companion on the TV saying, stupid TV, be more funny, <laughs> right? You have this expectation and it feels like you're just popping the clutch constantly when you read it. And I didn't want to have to live up to that expectation. And- um, well, Brief aside, it's a pretty yeah. good movie, I think, and a, and a very good novel. I'm a big fan of, of The Razor's Edge. But watching it, there are those like sort of four, about five minute sections in the movie where they're painfully trying to make Bill Murray be Bill Murray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it doesn't work out. Yeah, no, it's, um, and so like, and I think Bill Murray is a genius and he's finally figured yeah. out that sort of sweet spot of sardonic kind of like not over the top stuff. But um, I just, the problem was, with, with the reason, PJ was a court cautionary tale for me, even yeah. though it was kind of stupid on my part if I'm in the Jonah Goldberg business because PJ O'Rourke made a lot of money. A lot more money than I ever did, um, but really? oh, I think so. Okay. Yeah, I mean his speech fees, speaking fees were pretty great, um, and and his book sold well. I'm, I'm not begrudging it no, no, by no, any no. stretch, but like every penny. But um, uh, the you know the expectation was he always had to be funny and he always had to be on and um and I just didn't want to do that. I wanted to sort of. Um, and part of the problem was it bothered me because I do think he was a brilliant, brilliant guy, but he wasn't taken as seriously as he should have been because he was actually a really insightful guy. And I still had that chip on my shoulder about wanting to be taken seriously. And if all I am is like the guy who, you know, tells anti-French jokes and talks about how, you know, every time Alan Dershowitz takes Viagra, he gets taller. Um, like I'm not going to be the full person I want to be. You know, yeah. I used to go to my speakers bureau. And they, for years, they would say, well, you know, what do you want to be? Do you want to be David Brooks? Do you want to be P.J. O'Rourke? Do you want to be this? Do you want to be that? It's like, I want to be Jonah Goldberg, yeah. you know? And, um, and again, that might have been the wrong business decision, but it wasn't the wrong life decision. Yeah. You know, an interesting thing that you just um, sort of made me think of, one of the things that's really changed about the way we we work in the la and certainly in our generation, is that, you know, my father, your father typically had a job. Yeah. And that, you know, one income statement at the end of the year, one thing to pay tax on. Whereas in a busy year, I get probably, I don't know, 30 tax statements or something like that. Yeah. I probably get 100. And um, so you've got, what, five kind of jobs? Essentially, you know, you're at the dispatch, you have a syndicated column, you do speaking, you write books, um, you're a fellow at AEI, so that's five there. And you do some other things on top of that. And that's how you make a career for doing what we do. It's how you kind of make an income. You've got, you know, a whole bunch of different things you do. I think a lot of people are really uncomfortable with that. Mm -hmm. uh, people want to have, you know, a job where they punch a clock and come sit at a desk and do a thing. And there are hours and there's the end of a day and that's your income. And that's, that, that's kind of what you do. But the way work is evolving, I think for pretty much everyone in the, in the rich world, if you will, you know, if you're not a farmer or someone who owns a business or some or the people who own businesses now do all sorts of mm -hmm. stuff on top of that too. Um, you don't have a job. You've got like five or six or seven different things you do. How do you think that, um, how do we help people who don't sort of naturally gravitate to that kind of model of work uh, fit into a labor market like that, do you think? Yeah, it's a hard question. I mean, I, I fell over and I fell over backwards into it. You know, when I say I was in the Jonah Goldberg business, that's a retrospective description of what I ended up in, right? I, I saw it as 
I always used to do sort of portfolio maintenance is that you didn't want to have any one source of income because of the nature of the work we do, where that if you lose a gig, you can't make your mortgage, right? You wanted to, and also you didn't want to be able to not be able to say F you to somebody if they wanted you to do things that you didn't want to do. And um, I feel like you have some experience with that emotion. And um, and so- I, I've more often been said F you too. <laughs> um, There's the door, Williamson. And, <laughs> so uh, the, um, you know, so for me, it was always just, you know, I mean, I, when I started National Review Online, no disrespect to National Review, but I was getting $25 a piece that I would post on the internet. And that was a hard thing to pay, you know, pay your mortgage on um, or your rent. Um, I agree, it is going to be difficult. I mean, the, the mental workers, for want of a better term, right? Um, the people who don't work with a strong back and all that kind of thing. Um, there are gonna be more opportunities to do gig economy stuff. stuff. I also think there are more there are gonna be more opportunities for people with strong backs to do gigs, right? I mean, there is there is a you know, but whether or not for the strong back crowd, you can work your way into the middle class mm -hmm. doing that. I I don't know. Um, I mean, I do think coming up with the next generation or two of AI, there are gonna be a lot of people who wish they'd become plumbers instead of computer programmers or lawyers. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think that's necessarily a terrible thing, but it's going to be a terrible thing for a lot of individual people. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, the disruption thing is real. And, and, and sort of like I was talking earlier about the pace of the news cycle speeding up, the pace of all the cycles are speeding up. And I have never had a huge problem with technological change, um, but I do worry about the adaptiveness of societies to deal with it quickly and or in in time and i think it's going to be a rough transition for a lot yeah. of people it's interesting to me how entertainment has crept into so many non-entertainment jobs um particularly some kinds of you know traditional blue collar jobs like there's um more than one of these in, in new york these people who are celebrity butchers <laughs> and it's a thing yeah and you can pay i think it's like 500 bucks last time i looked to take this guy's you know, one evening meat seminar class where he talks about being a butcher and cutting meat. You know, my my father worked in a butcher shop, I want to say in the early 1950s. And I think if you'd gone back in time and tried to explain to the people working in that shop that there would be such a thing as a celebrity butcher <laughs> in the future, they would probably put you in a, in a mental asylum. Um, but there is something that's that, that is interesting, I, I think, about that, where you've got a lot of... Um, you know, sort of reality television shows that are based on traditional kind of blue collar occupations. I don't know if Ice Road Truckers is still on and that sort of yeah. thing, but um, those are those are those are things that command people's attention. There's a kind of interest, I think, in in traditional sorts of work, although um, less of an interest in actually doing it. Yeah, by a lot of people, unless you can be the celebrity butcher rather than just the regular butcher. Yeah. Well, I think that's. I hadn't thought about it in those terms, um, and not to sound like Tom Sowell, but not everyone can be the celebrity butcher, right? Because right. if everybody's a celebrity, nobody is. But um, at the same time, I think this desire for celebrity, um, not to get into sort of Yuval Levin's stuff about institutions, this is a problem. Like when you said, when you were starting to ask a question about how entertainment is becoming more and more a part of the thing, 
I thought you were going to be talking about this the problem journalism sure it's a huge thing in journalism which is is all about people being entertaining or performative or whatever and i think that you know this is the point that you've all um makes so well in his book a time to build is that a lot of institute the normal way we look at institutions is they're supposed to shape us mold our character towards a larger good and increasingly in our culture we view institutions as he would put it as platforms for us to perform upon and I think that that we we tend to focus on the conversation gets dominated by journalism because journalists are the ones who can, who have an outsized role in conversation national conversations. Yeah. It's sort of like um, everyone who's talking about um, you know how Twitter and social media is disruptive to journalism. It's disruptive to every institution, right? Mm-hmm. It's part of this larger trend of people not having faith and trust in institutions. It's it's populism across the board, not just in journalism. It's just we pay attention to the journalism part. And everybody wants to be the star of their own YouTube channel. I think on Instagram or TikTok, one of these things, they, they actually have a term for it. It's uh, main character syndrome. Yeah. Where everyone wants to be the lead character in the movie. I have no problem, to be honest, as a Lockean, with people wanting to be the lead character in the movie about their lives. Mm. But a lot of people don't realize that that the movie, they actually think they're the main character in the movie of everybody's life. Yeah. And that's a different thing. Yeah, but there's got to be some tension there between, and I, I'm, I'm uh, you've all a fan as well, and I've often quoted the same lines that, that, that you're quoting there, that we want to, um, we're skeptical of this idea of treating institutions as mere platforms, but also if you're going to be in the Jonah Goldberg business, as you right. say, you're going to be in the Kevin Williamson business, it's kind of what you do. Yeah. You know, every now and then if I have an article in the New York Times or something like that, I'll get some angry conservative who'll ask me, why do you want to be in the New York Times? And it's good shelf space. Right. You know, I'm, you know, I'm Smuckers essentially, and I'm selling my product. And this is a good shelf space to be in to get my product to people who haven't seen it before. Um, and at times I think that's, that kind of attitude can uh, end up being more cynical and self-serving than it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a there's a question I think of trying to establish a balance between uh, not necessarily loyalty, but the idea of I'm going to do things for the dispatch where we both work. Yeah, that is good for the dispatch and what the dispatch stands for, and it's and it's um, you know mission in in the world. And I think that's maybe easier at some at some institutions that have a really strong sense of either history or mission. You know, I think the Washington Post probably has a pretty good ability to get um, journalists to cover politics in a particular aggressive sort of way because of their history with Watergate and that sort of thing. That's why you go work at the Washington Post. Right. And it's something that it communicates down through the world. Now, that's also good for the careers of the people who do it. There's a reason we all know the names Woodward and Bernstein. It's not just because they were two guys who were on page, you know, A32 at the, at the Washington Post back in the 1970s. So I, I suppose my question there is, um, do you think there's a, a sort of problem of, well, not to get all weird and wonky here, but you think about the, the famous paper, The Nature of the Firm. Mm-hmm. And the reason we have businesses instead of everyone being um, an independent contractor all the time is the issue of transaction costs. You know, it's easy to have an organization that does stuff that's not necessarily always at every point making the most of every person who works there, but you know, you all sort of stick there together as part of a joint mission. And um, as we enter into a world in which there's a lot more mobility between jobs and between industries and um, even places where we work, you know, if you look at people who are kind of um, 
high-income people, high-achieving people at the top of their professions. There are often people who change jobs a lot, who yeah. have changed jobs a lot, who worked in 10 different cities in three different countries and two different continents. And, and, and that it's hard to maintain institutions sometimes, isn't it, in that kind of, uh, in that kind of environment? No, it definitely is. Um, you know, and I, I want to be clear, like as much as I say I was in the Jonah Goldberg business, I subordinated what was the, for the benefit of the Jonah Goldberg business to National Review. You were there 25 years, 30 20, years? I was there 20 years. 20 years. 20 years, maybe 21. And um, and I certainly have at, at the dispatch, right? I mean, yeah. um, and um, and I will, I mean, I'm getting on a plane tomorrow to do something for AI and, you know, two hours away and, or three hours away and like, I believe in supporting the institutions that you're part of. And the benefit I've had is that all those institutions were also very good at supporting me. So it never felt, it never felt too constraining, but I, I think it was Adam Davidson um, did this wonderful piece about the sort of Hayekian spontaneous order of the film industry mm. crew, right? Where you have all these people who are basically self-employed. I mean, they belong to a union, but they're self-employed. They're not part. And, the best directors just call them up and say, or the best producers, you know, say, I need you on the first of the month in Kansas City or whatever. And if they're available, they're available. And they all show up. They know exactly what to do. They know how to work together, even though they may not have worked together on every movie back to back. Um, and I think we're going to see more of that kind of um, economic production going down the line. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I think in some ways it'd be great if you could figure that out for a lot of uh, different industries. Um, uh, but yeah, the, the, uh, just to push back a little bit on the Washington Post point, part of the problem is the incentive structures at a lot of these institutions are for encouraging people mm -hmm. to be performative. Um, the, the Washington Post has, and I think Washington Post is a great newspaper. You know, obviously I have my editorial differences and blah, 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 blah. But um, the Washington Post, the newsroom now, I haven't been there, but I've talked to lots of people who have been. The main sort of giant bullpen newsroom has a real-time scorecard of who's got the most traffic at any given moment. And if you're in the top five on that, you're all, your job is safe. You have power and, and status inside the organization. And I remember when uh, Michael Kinsley started Slate. Um, it's funny. I share when I was a television producer, we shared the same offices with their DC bureau. So like I knew all of those guys uh, growing up professionally. And Kinsley was adamant that the staff never be allowed, the writers never be allowed to see their traffic numbers. And um, we generally have the same policy at the dispatch. Because there's some, for the good of the institution, there are some stories that we think should be covered, or that Kinsley thought should be covered, even if they don't get a lot of traffic, right? Yeah. And when you put metrics like traffic or ratings on everything, it is gr it can be grossly distorting to the real purposes of an institution. And I mean, we saw that we don't have to get too ad hominem about Fox, but that was where the whole respect the audience came from yeah. was um, it was audience capture. And I think a lot of institutions in, um, in media in in sort of think tank world and higher education, uh, the problem of audience capture is a huge one. And, um, 
And part of the internal logic of audience capture is to reward the most popular players who are the most performative. And I don't know that that's necessarily always a good business model or good for society. Yeah, I've always often thought that the instant feedback of the internet and, the, and those metrics and the availability of them is, is one of the downsides of it in many ways for our business because there's a sort of a natural tendency to be competitive with the person at the next desk. Right. And um, maybe I haven't written something that's actually better or um, that serves a more useful journalistic purpose, but... Um, but I've got 10,000 hits more than you do. So it's, um, it's, it's more important from that reason. Although what will cure you of this is going back and looking at your stuff and seeing what actually got huge traffic mm -hmm. and then wondering why yeah, yeah, <laughs> this yeah, thing, yeah. this thing that I worked hard on for a month, nobody read. Yeah. And I remember when I was at National Review, the thing I wrote that by far had more readers than just anything else was this thing I knocked off in probably four minutes about Anthony Scaramucci and the way he talks like he's in a, in a bad production of Glengarry Glen Ross. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, for some reason, that just clicked. And uh, like a million people read that or yeah. something. And uh, nothing else I, I ever got anywhere near that I big. remember that piece. I love that piece. That was fun. But, yeah. you know, it wasn't – no one's going to be reading that 200 years from now going, this was, you know, this was a great moment in 21st century journalism. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things that's hard for people to appreciate, and this really can ruin some young kids, is there's sometimes – there's something that people write that can be well-reported or it can be an opinion piece, it doesn't matter. But it just has the serendipitous good fortune of hitting at a ripe moment and in a larger context. Yeah. And the tide takes it. And it is a natural human tendency to think that something you produced that is hugely popular is all because of your genius rather than sort of exogenous forces. Yeah. And so you get, you know, I've, I've seen it for years in, in Washington – uh, you get young think tank wonks who would write an op-ed that hit a chord in a given moment, and they would all of a sudden think they've made it. They don't really have to work very hard anymore and yeah. that kind of stuff. And um, sometimes you're just lucky. I, I consider myself, a lot of my career, I just consider to be profoundly lucky that I stumbled on the internet at a good time. I had a voice at a, at a time where voice was more important than it used to be. I didn't take myself too seriously, but I took ideas seriously. And just the moment was ripe for that. And um, and I can take all the credit or salute my own wisdom about how brilliantly I read the moment, or I can just say I, I kind of uh, stumbled into a fortunate time and I worked really hard. Yeah. So get ready to wrap up here. Um, you mentioned writing uh, sci-fi novels and uh, comic books. Do you still have uh, aspirations that way? Probably not comic books, but yeah, I think I do have a, a novel or two in me. Mm -hmm. um, I need um, more FU money than I have right now because it would just take a lot. Of, I, I, it's not something I want to go off my attic and do from midnight to 2 a.m. every night. It's the kind of thing I would want to dedicate myself to, and that means I'd have to close down some other things in my life. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's something I think about a lot. Well, we could probably do this for another hour, but I won't subject everyone to that. So thank you much for being here, Jonah Goldberg. It's been, uh, been a pleasure. It's been great. Thanks for having me, Kevin. That concludes our most recent episode of How the World Works. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with my friend Jonah Goldberg. You can watch the entire interview on YouTube, and there will be a link to that in the show notes. Thank you all for watching and listening, and we'll talk to you next time.